Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. Before I went into ministry, years before I went into ministry, I'd worked in the airline industry. Um, In fact, my whole family has worked in the airline industry and mum just retired a little over three or four weeks ago um, being operations manager for um, for Air New Zealand and Sydney. So, you know, it, it's a funny thing. When I go back to Sydney, most of the times when I'm walking through customs and stuff, there's a, a, a sometimes a funny scene that happens. You know, someone's walking by and they look at me strangely. And then once they realize who I am, <gasps> Roberto, I remember you when you were this big. Oh! And, and it's like, yes, I remember you too. You know, <laughs> and, and there's all that you know, seriousness of being in line, you know, at immigration there, and, and you hear this waving, and Roberto, I know you, and you're like, yeah, I, you know, um, grew up in the airport, and, and grew up with, with that environment, and I, I went into it um, when I was old enough, and that was what I did. Um, initially, I worked for United Airlines, where I went, uh, ultimately becoming uh, a dispatcher for, for the airline, uh, working at Washington, D.C., and I, the, one of the first aircrafts I worked with um, was a 777. Um, 20 years ago, in June, was the first commercial flight of a 777. Um, the aircraft was first put into service by United Airlines, and the first service we flew was a Washington, D.C. to London service. And uh, it's quite a remarkable airline. Um, uh, aircraft, sorry. Uh, United's not a remarkable airline, but um, the aircraft is remarkable. Um, and it's interesting because you don't realise how much work goes into it. Uh, for example, in dispatch, our job was the weight and balance of an aircraft. Now, who would have ever thought that you had to measure out the weight and balance of an aircraft? You know, you don't think about it. You think the plane's just sitting there, they throw all the stuff on there, people go and sit down and you take off. But there's this intricate art of, of, uh, of actually laying out the aircraft so that it can take off in a proper way. Uh, many years ago, uh, there was a flight flying from Germany uh, to the US via Canada. Uh, and it was an old DC-8. And New Zealand used to have DC-8s themselves. Um, and on average, with a dispatcher, they would average a, a human being to weigh 70 kilos, mainly because you've got men, women, and children, but the average layout is 70 kilos. And the average bag is usually about 15 kilos for each human being. Now, the, the dispatcher that had, for, had worked out this flight had used those calculations and, gave, and given the, uh, the information to the pilot, but unfortunately, on this flight, they were all soldiers returning home. So they're all male... They're all decked out in their soldier in all their gear. So the average human being on that flight actually weighed 100 kilos with all their gear on. On top of that, they had all their packs, every one of them. And instead of averaging 15 kilos, their packs averaged 30 kilos. So the, the pilot, thinking that he had a certain weight on board, had geared the aircraft to take off with that weight when it actually weighed a whole lot more. And so when he went to take off, the aircraft wouldn't, wouldn't take off. And when it finally did, it stalled and it crashed. And people realised at that point that it's actually quite important to know what the weight is on an aircraft and also balance it right. So now everything's done automatedly. Back in the time when I was working and we had all these charts that you had to kind of 
you know, crisscross and all that, but now it's all done it automatically. But a 777 is an incredibly remarkable aircraft. 20 years from June this year that it's been in service, and there's only been two instances. One was a problem with the Rolls-Royce engines, um, and it was a, a, a British Airways flight that came into Heathrow, and as the plane was coming into land, the engine stalled and it crashed. Do you know how many people died in that incident? Zero. Um, a year ago was another incident, and this was due to pilot error, when the aircraft was coming into land into San Francisco. It was an Asiana airline. They were coming into land into San Francisco. The pilot had uh, not followed the glide scope, which is this little picture that tells you how the aircraft should be flying in, and he landed uh, right on the edge of the runway too hard, and the plane crashed. Uh, in that incident, three people died, but two of them actually died because of the emergency service, not because of the crash. So in actual reality, only one person died on the crash. So this is an aircraft that has a superb history. This is also the same exact aircraft that Malaysia Airlines uh, Flight 370 is, and what we're hearing quite a lot about lately. Now, just to put it into perspective, anybody here fly up to Auckland before or to, or to Wellington? A few of you have, right? Well, Air New Zealand flies A320s. And so does Jetstar. So you can see the difference in size. Quite a big difference, huh? These are the little ones that we think are quite big when we fly up to Auckland and stuff. But that's the 777. It's almost a, a monster compared to it. Now, the thing is, the point that I want to make this morning is this. No matter how well we design things, no matter how beautiful technology can be, it's still made by human hands. And it would be unwise of us to think that something may not go right with them. They are flown by humans and they're created by humans and as great a mechanism as they are, they're not perfect. They're not perfect. But we know someone who is, right? Do we? His name's Jesus. It's interesting because we're, we're going into um, chapter 8 of Hebrews and, and look... It's not an easy chapter. It hasn't been a few easy chapters. It's been difficult. But, you know, you've got to kind of get your head into it. But hopefully this morning, uh, I'll, I'll be able to put it in a way that you can understand what's actually going on in it. But I want to open up, first of all, with these verses. Um, actually, this verse, sorry, uh, is this. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. This is from the beginning of chapter 8. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, who serves in the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by mere, a mere human being. And the question I want to ask you this morning is this. What is a priest? What's a priest? A go-between? Between us and God? Anyone else? Yeah. 
One who prays on behalf of God's people. Anything else? Represents man before God. Someone who's sanctified. He gives God's messages. Yeah. Levites are also healers. That's interesting. Yeah, they were. In the Old Testament, the priest was also the doctor. So you would take your sick to them and they would look after you. That was a role of the priest. Any other ideas of what a priest is? He's appointed by God. Absolutely. So we see in the Old Testament, you've got the high priest and his job is a representative of God for God's people. He does offer the sacrifices and has to be himself sanctified to be able to go into the presence of God. Um, he does work as a go-between between the people and God. So who is our high priest today? Jesus. And where does he sit? He sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Why on the right hand? Sorry? Place of power and authority? Anyone else know why he's on the right hand side? That's the what? Where your beloved, where the person that you feel is important is on your right hand side. Anything else? No? In, in Israel, uh, I'll give you a picture of it actually, um, the Sanhedrin, which was the council, the court, the high priest would sit in the middle and two scribes, one on the right and one on the left. The one on the right wrote up the acquittals. The one on the left wrote up the condemnations. So what does Jesus do at the right-hand side of God? Writing the acquittals. Does that make sense? So he sits at our right, at the right hand side of God, yes, in power, yes, in glory, but his job is to write the acquittals, not the condemnations. It's interesting because in the Old Testament, in Zechariah, guess who's sitting at the right hand side of God? Then he showed me. Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, standing at his right side, to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, Lord, rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? For he had changed the right-hand side to be a place of condemnation. Jesus came back, set it right, and has made it a place of acquittal. You with me? So how, what does that mean for us? Why do we have a high priest? Why do we have someone who's up there or speaking on our behalf? Well, a plane, in a sense, a plane like a 777 or an A320 is very much like us, in a sense, it's like life, in fact. 
you know, you look out the window, you can only see so much, right? Within your sphere of influence, you can only see as far as you can see. The people around you are just the people that you can most probably connect with if you really wanted to. But lo and behold, do you know the pilot? Most of us don't know who's up front. And most of us know, don't know where this plane is going to go. I mean, we think we've got the destination in mind, and I'm sure, you know, that when you're on the plane, you're hopeful he's going to take you to where you've paid your ticket to. But let's be honest, you can't be absolutely certain of that. So you put your trust in someone you really don't know, going to a place you hope you feel you're going to, and it gets bumpy up there, doesn't it? I flew over, I don't even flew, I've never flown into Wellington yet, but I've flown over Wellington a few times and it just seems like every time I go over Wellington, and then it smooths out right after that, right? I don't know if it's a spiritual thing or what, but it's just, and, and, but life can be like that on a plane, right? All of a sudden things seem very smooth, next thing you know, fasten your seatbelt and, and life gives you a shake, very much like a plane. Guess who's a pilot? in our lives, who should be the pilot in our lives? Jesus, the high priest. I'll break that down a little bit more. A question, another question I want to ask you is this. What is the difference between pastor and priest? Pastor's like a shepherd? Looking after the flock? Anything else? Priests are more like the law, pastors are more like guiding you? That's a good point. It's a difference between priest and pastor. Do I fly the plane? in terms of us today yep the one who is an intermediate between God and us yep so the priest today in the Catholic Church is very similar to the priest of the Old Testament in that he is an in-between speaks on behalf of us to God yep Pastor is someone who cares for each member of the congregation, yep. Visit people who are unwell, anoint them, okay. Gotcha. Yep, so that shepherd figure. Okay. You know, there is actually a passage in the Bible that tells us what a pastor is. You go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. It says this, it says, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. 
This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will all be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full, complete standard of Christ. So the pastor's role, the way I read it, is that of building up God's church to the point of where we have unity in Christ. Our knowledge and our unity in Christ is brought together. Which actually then asks, well, what's the body of Christ do? And the body of Christ is this, just reading a little bit further down. He, Christ, makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So why don't we have a priest in the church today? As Baptists? We don't need one, exactly. We have direct access to God, but... We also have direct access to each other. See, the Old Testament, you would go to the priest. You'd go to the high priest or you'd go to the... Well, at the time, especially in Jesus' time, it was the synagogue where you had the ruler, the, the priest, who, who, the rabbi who overlooked what was going on in the neighbourhood or in the community. And so you would go to him. Today, you don't need to go to him. You can go to each other. That's what the priesthood of all believers is. Not only are we connected to God directly... But when I look out of my little mirror in the plane, I have a better vision of where God is taking me because the person in front of me can see that little bit more and share it with me. Do you understand? So I've got seat 21A and the person in 22A has a different view from his mirror, from his window. And he's got other connections because he might know people in the row ahead of him and so on and so forth. And that's how the body of Christ works. Because our high priest flies the plane, we together can see more, can connect more, can care more, because we're looking out for each other. The problem with the priest model on earth is that we rely on one person to do all of that. And our dependency doesn't become in in Christ, it becomes in the person. And that person figure becomes central to how I feel or how I'm connecting with God or how I need to grow. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Now, it's interesting, as you keep going on, there's this huge spiel now where he talks a lot about covenant. So he said, hey, Jesus is your high priest. And now he starts saying this, in verse 8 he goes on, he goes, but God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord. You guys aren't getting this right. Let me just tell you, this is what's happening. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with your ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will give 
forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So who knows what a covenant is? A pact? An agreement? Okay, going back to the plane analogy, guess what the covenant is? It's the ticket. When you buy a ticket, you're expecting something to happen. But you're also agreeing to all these rules that you may not actually know about. There's the Warsaw Pact, which all the airlines have signed to, that you, they will tell you this is what's going to happen, what they expect of you. They could kick you off the plane if you're not acting a certain way, or if you're acting a certain way more than anything. Um, you know, there are certain rules and regulations that you actually sign on to when you buy a ticket. And like when you go on with the Lord, you are joining in a covenant with the Lord. And it's not the old covenant. What was the old covenant? The Ten Commandments. Yeah. It's a new one. And what is that one? Love. Embodied in? In Jesus. Putting your trust in the Lord, putting your, your life into the Lord, sitting on the plane knowing who's flying the plane and trusting that he will get you to where you need to go. I don't know about you guys, I hate flying. It's strange for a guy who collects airplane models. I hate it. When I was a kid, I grew up in the airline industry. My dad and his family was in Italy and every year we would fly to Italy and my dad always came up with very weird and inventive ways of getting to Italy. He wasn't the typical guy that would just take the flight that would fly straight to Italy. He did that once, I think, the whole time. Every other time it was via Africa or via South America or Central America, all these weird places where you would fly these dodgy airlines and and you would just kind of wonder whether you'd get out of this. And I hated it as a kid. And I would sit there as a kid, and I know this might sound psychotic, but I would talk to the plane. I was like, please, plane, get us there. And I'd be patting the side of it and just praying to the plane to just stay straight and fly well. As a kid, that's the way I was. I hated it. There was just a sense of you can't see what's ahead of you. You can't see what's behind you. And you're stuck in this little thing. And especially at nighttime, you can't even see out the window. And I hated it. And then I became a Christian. And all of a sudden, now I'm buying a ticket on a plane where, you know, where it goes, I don't care. What happens to it, I don't care. In fact, I don't even pray to the plane anymore. Why don't I care? Because I trust Jesus. I trust Jesus who's flying the plane. He's my high priest. He sits at the right hand of God. He sits there in a a position of love, knowing that, hey, Rob, I know you don't trust this. I know you struggle with, with the adventures that you want. I want to take you on. I know you struggle with the fact that you're not happy at 35,000 feet and you've heard of other planes crashing and you've heard of all these things going wrong. But at the end of the day, the high priest is calling you to trust him. And that's what this passage is about. It's about you and buying a ticket and getting on a plane where the high priest is leading it and the covenant in that ticket is between you and God the Father who says, you follow my son and I will watch over you. I will forgive you and I 
have a plan and purpose for you. And that's the power of the covenant we have in Christ. Who's going to look at flying in a different way from now on? It is a difficult thing, for me in particular. Why? Because I'd rather be flying the plane myself. My poor wife, she, she knows this. We drove across the states seven days from, east, from west to east. Do you think I let her drive at all in that time? Oh, we're doing eight, days of dri- eight hours of driving a day. Oh, no, I'm fine. No, no, really, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, that control of me wanting to be in control. And some of us here have those issues as well. It's hard to be on the plane sitting in a very confined space, wondering what life is going to bring to you, wondering what's out the window, I can't make out what's going on out there, wondering who's actually flying this plane, why doesn't he come on and and speak and tell me what's going on up there. I don't know about you guys, but every time I hear the pilot talking to me when I'm on a plane, it makes me feel much calmer. Why? Because it sounds like the guy's got things under control. And so in prayer and when we talk into Christ and we're engaging in our relationship with him, you know what? He talks back and he calms us and he soothes us and it makes the ride just a little bit better. So the challenge the writer of Hebrews has in, our, in these chapters is, okay, who's the covenant you've got with right now? What plane are you flying on? Do you know who's flying the plane? Can you trust who's flying the plane? Are you able to let go Can you allow Christ to be number one in your life? Because the the Jews in the first century were struggling. They were torn left and right. Their heritage wanted them to fall back on, on the old covenant because it's easy to have the laws in hand. It's harder to deal with this grace thing sometimes. And then there's pressures to fall back on that. And to be guided and maybe check in your ticket, get it refunded and take another one. Because this one seems a bit more secure because it's based on rules and regulations. And you know what, the 777 hasn't really crashed in 20 years, so it's got to be safe. So hey, we could could go with that. We We can stick with that. God's challenging you this morning. Don't put your trust in me or any other human being in this room. Don't call me the priest, or don't call anybody else the priest. You have one priest. His name's Jesus. Trust in him. Trust in him. Are you with me? Let's pray. Father God, first of all, we, we just want to lift up the people and the families that are involved with that Malaysian air flight right now. Um, I, can't, I can't even imagine what they're going through right now. I can't even imagine what the people on that plane would have been going through right now. But we do lift up those families to you, Lord. It's a real-life situation where we ourselves would never want to be found in. We pray for the families, for the friends of those who are on that plane, who are suffering right now without the knowledge of where their loved ones are. 
And if it is someone who's hijacked that plane and hopefully still has it under control, Lord, we pray for them that you may change their hearts. But Lord, we pray for our own lives as well. Maybe some of us here have checked into a a different flight. They feel a bit more secure or whatever it might be. But Lord, you have a covenant with us through Jesus Christ. And that covenant is a covenant of love. Jesus stands at the right-hand side of our Lord, Father in heaven. He's the one that writes our acquittals. He's the one that keeps the plane steady and sure. Help us to put our trust in him as we go through our lives. Help us to be focused on him. As the wind blows and weather's been so crazy in this town for so long now. Our hope is in you, Lord. May our trust be in you as well.